Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 14. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which there were a lampstand and a table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot speak now speak in detail. These preparations... Having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot be perfect, that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, Then, though the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. This is God's word. Friends, Jesus takes us from impurity to purity. And it is permanent and perfect. And this good news changes everything for us. I'm a big fan of the show Downton Abbey. Have you guys seen it? I know I'm either going to make a lot of friends or lose a lot of friends today. I think Downton Abbey's a brilliant show. You have to say brilliant because it's British. It's brilliant. Right? It has great characters, great storyline, fantastic music. And there's this one character on the show, John Bates. Right? You know Bates? He's a guy. A likable guy who has some sort of past shrouded with a little mystery. Right? We know he has a limp, a physical limp. Uh, we know that uh, there's some things about his past that we still have not learned from the show. We do know in recent episodes, uh, last season, he spent some time in jail for a crime that he may or may not have committed. Right? And it's a great show because you're watching this show and you're seeing this man try to go from this uh, mysterious guy with a mysterious past where you know he had um, a marriage before and his ex-wife died mysteriously and he has this physical limp from his past and uh, you know he's kind of defined by that in his past but he's trying to move forward with his life he he gets married to a girl named Anna he's this uh, great stoic gentlemanly 
flow, right? And so if you follow the show, Downton Abbey, which you should, you can see that we're, we're, we're following Bates' character transition from something of his past to something in his future, but stuff from his past keeps kind of coming back to haunt him. Even in recent episodes where, where, where Bates is defending the honor of his wife, I won't tell you how, but defending the honor of his wife, there's this fear that maybe because of his past, he's going to have to go back to jail because of something in his past. Now, you see, I love that show, and I, I love the character of Bates because I think he's a great example of just your average person, right? Because he has something looming from his past that kind of foreshadows his present and may even define his future. And it's not only uh, you know, a social thing and a historical thing within him, but even a very physical thing. I mean, you see, he has a physical limp, which is a great literary analogy of him dragging something with him throughout his life, trying to move forward. See, in the same way, all of us have some sort of a past. All of us. Most of us have something in our past that we're not proud of or not uh, happy to talk about. Maybe it's something uh, that you have done very, you know, uh, wrong, wicked. Maybe you feel like you have kind of a dirty, checkered past. Maybe your past has something to do with the family that you come from, or maybe a, a tradition or a lifestyle that you lived in, and now here you are in the present trying to uh, live in light of your past. And what happens for many of us is often we find ourselves either trapped and defined by our past, saying, well, uh, it's just how I am. I've always been a liar, so I guess I'm just going to be a liar. Or I've been known to be a gossip, so I guess people just have that reputation of being a gossip. Or, you know, I was a, a huge party person back in college, so I just have that reputation of, of being the partier or, or kind of getting around or being the flirt or, or maybe having this reputation of not being good with money or whatever it may be. And often we look at that baggage and say, man, my whole present is colored because of my past. And it could even be something like, well, my family, you know, you come from that family, that family is known to be a bunch of whatever. And so what happens is we see that we live in the present of a broken world and often we see our lives defined by our past. And sometimes we just give up and say, well, I just give up. That's just who I am. It's how I am. And you find yourself just living in the brokenness of your past because you feel hopeless and helpless. Other times we try to pick ourselves up by our bootstraps and say, I refuse to be defined by my past. I'm going to do better, try harder. I'm going to not be like my father. I'm going to not be like the other guys in my family. I'm going to not be how I was in college. I'm going to change how I am. And that's even harder to do when you, as a 36-year-old man, live in your hometown. It's hard to escape your past. But let me tell you something. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus accepts us for who we are and how we are. He changes us to live in a new way of life. And that's good news. The good news is you are not defined by your past. The good news is you are not defined by how good you can make up for it in your present. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus accepts you, he changes you, he grows you, and he moves you on to a new way of life. And that gives us great freedom. This is the pattern of the gospel stories. This is why Jesus 
steps in on the scene in the first century and looks at humanity that is broken and defined by the past. You have people that are poor, people that are lame, people that are blind, people that are dead. And he says, you are no longer defined by those things. You pick up your mat and walk. You're no longer defined by being lame. You're going to walk now. You are no longer defined by being blind. You are going to see now. You are no longer defined by your adultery. I love you. I accept you. I forgive you. Now get up and sin no more. And that is the good news of the gospel. And this happens in the book of Hebrews as the writer is telling us how Jesus does this. The writer of Hebrews is connecting Jesus to the Old Testament patterns of worship and covenant relationship between God and his people and people with each other. And he's showing us how all of those things for centuries, for generations and generations, are not perfect, but are pointing us to Jesus. They're, they're not, they're not uh, eternal things, but they are temporary things that have God's people anticipating something greater. And the writer of Hebrews is saying all of that anticipation is fulfilled in Jesus. All of those imperfect things are made perfect in Christ. And that is good news for us. And so we see in chapter 9 where we are today, there's a lot of imagery that's not common for you and I today unless you come from a more uh, Hebrew-Jewish background. Right? You see, there's lots of imagery about how God's people worshipped. If you read uh, back in the Old Testament in Exodus, Leviticus, and then in Deuteronomy, you get more of an understanding about what was going on here. But chapter 9 is rich with, with this framework of Old Testament worship. Right? You see that there is instruction of where worship takes place. It's in, uh, in a tent. If you read the book of Exodus, you know God's people were portable. Right? Kind of, We've been portable in a school for 18 months. God's people were portable for almost 40 years. Okay? Anybody want to sign up for that? No, right? So God's people were portable. They would set up a tent called a tabernacle. It was a place for God's people, uh, for God to come down so that God's people could worship him. They had different priests that would go in to worship. Priests had different roles. They had priests that would enter in one section and, and, and uh, worship God on behalf of the people. They had another section called the most holy place that, that the high priest would enter once a year to offer atonement for the sins of the people. Sins that even could be unintentional sins. And this would be involved with um, uh, having blood sacrifices from, uh, from goats. And uh, God's people uh, worshipped that way for years. But it was something that had to be done over and over and over again. Every year, the high priest had to go into the most holy place again to offer sacrifices. Over and over again, the tent had to be set up. So God's people could worship over and over again. There was a lot of work. It was very temporary. It was very imperfect. But the writer of Hebrews says those things are good. Those things were lacking in some areas, but those things existed to point us to someone who is going to make all things right once for all. There will be a permanent and perfect way of worship where the impurities and imperfections of the past and brokenness is dealt with and no longer does it have to be dealt with again and again and again and again and again but it's dealt with once for all and that's good news and that's Jesus so I want us to look here and see how the writer of Hebrews in this chapter unpacks that for us because the writer of Hebrews talks about purity having the impurity and imperfections dealt with once and for all, so that we can have uh, pure lives that is, 
in Christ that's uh, purity marked by permanence and perfection. And this gives us a new way of living, new motivations, a new purpose for life here and now. So look with me first at the permanence of the purity we have in Christ. In verse 6 it says this, These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But in the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, he offers for himself the unintentional sins of the people. By this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened, as long as the first section is still standing. According to this, excuse me, According to this, arrangements, gifts, and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. So the writer of Hebrews is saying, look, the old way had its place. The old way deals with some things, but in the end is imperfect. It cannot deal uh, once and for all for the conscience of the worshipers. But we see in Christ this is made True, because in verse 11, the writer goes on and says, look, Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come. See, over here we have a foreshadowing of what not is fully realized. So we have washings and rituals and sacrifices and things that happen year after year after year that has to happen. um, But those things cannot once and for all clear the conscience of God's people. But verse 11 says, but... When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, he enters once and for all into the holy places by the means of his own blood. You see, Jesus set foot in human history to live the perfect life we should live but can't. He died a death as a sacrifice so that we no longer have to year after year after year sacrifice goats and animals to say, God, forgive us, please, and temporarily forgive us for our unintentional sins. Jesus, once and for all, by his own sacrifice, deals with our imperfections and impurities once and for all. And this is such good news for us. We no longer have to rely on our own efforts that are imperfect. We no longer have to rely on our own efforts that are temporary. Think about the ways that you try to make up for the sins of your past. Just think right now. All of us have, okay, if you don't have baggage from your past, there's a good chance there's something in your present that you're failing to look at. Because everybody has something. Everybody has some sort of limp. Everybody has some sort of vice or hang-up that you struggle with thinking, I don't want to be defined by that way of thinking anymore. I don't want to be defined by the way of action. I don't want to be defined by my addictions. I don't want to be defined by my bad attitude, by my anger, by my lust. I don't want to be defined by my loose mouth that just is smart-alecky. I don't want to be defined by that anymore. Some of you are like, I don't want to become like my dad. I don't want to be like my mom. I don't want to be like my brother's. I want to break the cycle that has defined my family. I don't want to fit in that mold anymore. Okay? All of us are there somewhere. I got mine. I'll share them with you if you buy me lunch this week. Hmm? French market girl. All of us have something. Right? I want to ask you, how do you try to deal with your impurities and imperfections of your past? How do you deal with it? Just... Do you embrace it? Say, forget it. It's just who I am. God made me this way. Some of you do. Just be honest with yourself. 
Do you try to combat it by saying, I'm going to do better and try harder? Somebody in my past did this. I'm not going to be like that. I'm going to be more moral than that person. Or, you know, I did some foolish things in college. I'm going to be smarter than that now. I'm going to work harder. I'm going to try better. Do you do that? It's okay if you do. Because what I want to tell you is this, is we don't want to get the cart before the horse. If you try to do those things to say, maybe God God could never forgive me, my wicked past. If I could just clean myself up, maybe then he'll accept me. If you're approaching faith like that, your faith is backwards. And I love you, and I want you to get your faith not backwards. The good news is that Christ, once and for all, has dealt with that. So you're accepted, you were loved, your impurities and imperfections are dealt with. Now, because of that... We have a new way of life. I'm going to get there. And my third point, I'm jumping ahead. <clears throat> so I want you to think, how do you try? What are the imperfect ways you try to deal with yourself and your past and your imperfections and impurities? What are the temporary ways you do that? Because the scriptures, the gospel is that Christ appeared as the high priest who entered once for all in the holy places by the means of his own blood. Verse 12 says, It's the greatest statement. Verse 12 says, securing eternal redemption. Isn't that awesome? Securing eternal redemption. That means the purity Christ gives you is permanent. He has secured something that can never be taken away. You cannot lose it. It wasn't yours to gain. It's not yours to lose. It is his securing redemption of you. It's something he does for you. You can't lose that. You can't gain it either. It's a gift. He rescues you. That's what verse 12 says. I love that statement. It'll change your life if you embrace the statement that Christ appears as the high priest once for all, securing an eternal redemption. That changes everything. You walk out of here today and you give the finger to some guy on Washington Road, you don't lose your salvation. Just repent and put that finger back in your pocket. Right? If you struggle with something on the Internet tonight, fellas, throw your computer out the window, first of all. You're not defined by that anymore. And if you slip up, you don't lose your salvation Right? If you have doubts about your faith and you're like, man, you know what? I grew up in this, you know, I grew up Baptist or grew up Presbyterian, grew up Catholic, I grew up whatever, whatever you grew up in, you're like, man, I thought I believed this, but I'm kind of unsure. It's okay. Because the good news of the gospel is you don't have to get it to be gotten by Christ. You, you don't have to have a perfect resume and like a straight A report card. We just come to Jesus like, look at my report card, Jesus. I've never missed Sunday school. Dude, miss Sunday school sometime. We don't even have Sunday school. Wow, we are messed up. Some of you you guys are like, what's Sunday school? (laughs) What kind of church is this? What I want you to know is when we look, and what I love what the writer of Hebrews says, he's not blasting people for saying, you're a bunch of foolish heretics. The writer of Hebrews is writing good religious people. He's writing people that come from a very rich, God-honoring tradition. He's writing people who say, we, we know the script. These, the people that are reading this in the first century know the Bible better than me and you probably ever will. I mean, they are, they are smart, holy, 
religious people, and they're good, and they're God's people. He's not, the writer's not writing at them like blasting them, saying, get it together, people. He's saying, look, 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 everything about your past, the, the broken imperfections, I mean, your sins, your impurities, he even says the unintentional sins, like, oops, I didn't even know that was a sin. I've been doing that for years. Well, it's an unintentional sin. It's cool. And even the good traditional worship framework, it's good. I mean, they're doing what God told them to do in the Old Testament. But you know what? It's imperfect. And it's temporary. And that's okay. That was God's grace to them for that season. But what he's saying is the whole point of that grace for that season is a springboard to Christ. So don't get stuck on the springboard saying, what a cool springboard. Spring to Christ. So good. Because in Christ, we have eternal redemption that is secure. Man, I love that. Changed my world. So, oh, here's another caveat. My notes got out of order. How did that happen? The iPad for you. Technology. Here's some good news. Okay, so Christ secures for us an eternal redemption by the means of his own blood. All right, so there's this imagery going on that I want you to see because we can't miss it. Because the Old Testament here talks about at the, at the beginning of this chapter, he talks about uh, entering a most holy place to make sacrifices, right? And that Jesus makes this sacrifice by his own blood. Okay, Romans 3, 23 to 26, the Apostle Paul writes this, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. The word propitiation is the same word that's used in Leviticus 16 to, to describe the mercy seat. Okay, so when you have this imagery of year after year, a priest going into the most holy place, making sacrifices for the sins of the people over the mercy seat to say, God, we need your grace, we need your forgiveness, we need your redemption. Here's blood on the mercy seat. God's presence comes down and says, I'm with you, I'm not leaving you. That happens year after year after year. And then Paul writes in Romans that, hey, that's what Jesus does by his grace. It's a gift to us. It's his blood is that mercy seat. And then the writer of Hebrews comes along and says, hey, everybody, all of that Old Testament stuff is pointing us to Jesus because the secure, the redemption we have in Christ is eternally secure. The blood of Christ, the mercy seat of God. You should read Leviticus 16. It's complicated, but it's worth a read. So first and foremost, we have to see that the, the... I want us to understand the permanence of the purity we have in Christ. In Christ, you, your redemption is eternally secure. You with me? Don't ever forget that. When you have doubts, when you have struggles, just say, hey, look, my security is in Christ. It's eternal, never going away, ever. Wrestle with your doubts, wrestle with your fears, but at the end of the day, get that statement and trust that in Christ you are eternally secure. Your redemption is not going anywhere. And if anybody tells you different, you need to just open the Bible and love them or slap them. I'll leave them up to you. Leave that up to you. Secondly, I'm not a violent man. Good grief. 
Secondly, we need to know this, is that not only is the purity we have in Christ permanent, we see the permanence of the purity we have in Christ, but secondly, I want us to see the perfection of the purity we have in Christ, because uh, the author continues to stress this after he says the permanence of Christ, like Christ has appeared as a high priest, verse 12, once and for all enters the holy places, securing, by the means of his own blood, securing an eternal redemption, right? Verse 13, for if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls with the ashes of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? See, what he's saying is, look. Things in the past, the tradition of the past is temporary, and it's imperfect. It has to be done over and over again, but it's a foreshadowing of the perfection that's in Christ because the blood of goats and bulls is temporary brokenness of man, uh, of, of um, natural world that's broken and flawed, right? But the blood of Christ is perfect, right? The mercy seat of God is now the blood of Christ, so it's a permanent and perfect redemption we have. And so I was studying in the scriptures this week and was reminded of one of the most epic few verses um, that have rocked my world for years. If you read in the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, right, he's a prophet of Judah, um, God's people struggling with exile and oppression for generations, and they start to be apostate in those situations are like, you know, we're doubting God. We don't know. Maybe we should just embrace the idols over here, or maybe we should forget God because he seems to have forgotten us. And then God would send his prophets along to proclaim the good news that, Hey, God is gracious. He loves you. You're his people. Don't forget that. The prophet Isaiah, I mean, and the prophets would have to live very different lives, right? I mean, so you think of a prophet, think of somebody who's living a very spiritually, intellectually smart very, uh, they could be moody. I like that. I think the prophets are like emo musicians. Like they're just, they're great because they're super smart and they're very passionate at the same time. But they would live very specific, good, moral lives, right? I mean, prophets were, they weren't perfect people, but they had a very distinct calling. And look what happens with the prophet Isaiah, right? Isaiah 6, a very famous passage, has a vision of God, says this, there's a vision of the presence of God. It says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me. Having in his hand a burning coal, he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. That's, that's beautiful and terrifying, is it not? What I want us to see, here you have the prophet Isaiah. Brilliant, Right? close to God, very spiritual, just following God's calling on his life to just constantly proclaim the goodness of God to God's wayward people. He was probably the most religious, most moral, best guy in Judah at that time, period. He was just the best. And what does he say when he's in the presence of God? 
Does he say, God, I'm a prophet. I know the Bible. God, look how moral I am. God, look, I'm better than everybody else back there. All those people with their baggage and their sin and their grossness and their annoying little idiosyncrasy. I'm not like them. I'm your prophet, Isaiah. What does he say when he's in the presence of God? Right? He says, woe is me, for I am lost. Friends, it's okay when you're like meeting with the Lord to say, I feel lost, man. I come from this impure, pagan, crazy background. I mean, I'm so thankful YouTube didn't exist when I was in college. You should, you should know my past is wretched. I feel lost. You can also say, man, I come from a very religious, spiritual background, a good background, a good family. I've always been a moral person. I've always been a person of faith. But I feel lost. Friends, that's a good place to be, and I think more of us are there than we want to admit. I think we're afraid to admit that, man, I feel lost amidst all of this gospel missional conversation. I feel lost when we talk about the Bible. I feel lost because of my past. It's okay to be there, especially when you're in the presence of God. Isaiah wrote 66 chapters of the Old Testament, and he felt lost in the presence of God. Listen to what else he says. For I am a man of unclean lips. Wow. So you mean to tell me this guy that God had identified as a prophet at the, at the beginning of his book here is saying, look, I'm a man of unclean lips. Huh? A foul-mouthed person. <laughs> right? I, I live amongst the people of foul-mouthed people, man. We're just, we're just wicked people. I mean, out of the mouth, the heart speaks. So it's an indication that there's something going on here in the heart, right? It's like, it's like saying when you're before the Lord, it's not just what you say. It's like what's going on in your heart that's going on. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. My eyes have now seen the King, the Lord of hosts. What a wretched state to be in, man. All right, you're standing before the Lord saying, I am imperfect. I'm imperfect because of the brokenness of my past. I'm, in the, I'm imperfect because of my current awesome resume. That's what Isaiah is saying. I'm imperfect. I'm imperfect. As good as I am as your prophet, I'm still imperfect, Lord. An angel flies down. It's very bizarre imagery for you and I with a burning coal and some tongs. Right? Touches his lips and say your guilt is taken away, your sin is atoned for. This is some brilliant imagery to show us that in the presence of God, our sin, our imperfections, our impurity is dealt with. It's gone. You're no longer, so, so I mean, basically what's happening there is the angel saying, hey, in the presence of God, Isaiah, you are no longer lost, but you're found. You're not defined by your lostness, you're defined by your foundness. Right? Isaiah, you're no longer defined by your unclean lips. You're defined by being a spokesman of God. Man, your sin's been taken care of. You're no longer defined by the people you associate with, the people of unclean lips. That's been dealt with, too. You are now defined differently, purely. And this is what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Not only is the purity we have in Christ permanent, but it's perfect because we are now no longer defined by our brokenness, we're no longer defined by our uh, you know, relational connection to other broken people. We're no longer defined even by our good resume. In the presence of God, we become, the word here is disintegrated in the presence of God's holiness. 
And by his grace, he takes away our guilt. He takes away our sin. And we are now different. This is why the author of Hebrews says, Christ appears once and for all by the means of his own blood, secures eternal redemption. And down in verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience. That's what I want you to see is that same epic moment that Isaiah experiences in the presence of God is the same epic moment that the writer of Hebrews says happens when you are in the presence of Christ. He deals once and for all with your sin. It's atoned for. So in the presence of Christ, you can say, woe is me. I'm a person of unclean lips. I live amongst people of unclean lips. I say stuff. My heart thinks stuff. I feel badly. My resume may be great, but it's still not good enough. My baggage is heavy. God, help me. And in the presence of Christ, you are purified. Your sin is atoned for. You are a new person. We'll just do this one. Got a red light on the battery pack here. How did that happen? How long have I been up here? Point number 794. I'm just kidding. So what I want us to know is that, is that in Christ, the purity we experience is permanent. The purity we experience is perfect. And nothing can change that. But finally, so I want you to think about this. Think about the guilt and shame, maybe, that you're carrying from the past. And in Christ, you are freed from that. But also think about the pride that you experience in your present. Because those two reactions are really just two sides of the same coin. We often say, well, man, I don't have a bad past. I don't have a wicked past. I don't have an impure past. I was a good person. Be careful lest your present resume be prideful. Look how good I am. So I love about Isaiah. He doesn't say, hey, I'm good. I'm holy. I do things right. I'm not like those wicked people over there. No, he doesn't say that at all. Here the prophet is saying, dude, I'm just as wicked as the wickedest person over there. I'm a person of unclean lips amongst a person and people of unclean lips. But thirdly and finally, I want us to know this, is that the purity we have in Christ is permanent and it's perfect. But there is a, a purpose that God has for us with that purity. Purity is not just something to say, all right, you belong to Jesus, now sit back and enjoy the ride. There is a purpose that God has by purifying his people. He says, I'm going to change you and shape you. You're not going to be defined by your past. You're not going to be defined by your prideful present. I'm going to humble you. You're going to be my people. I'm going to shape you for a purpose. And that purpose is to proclaim how good I am to the world. You do that with your words. You do that with your your deeds. And we see at the beginning of chapter 9, the author is writing all of these items out. It's kind of hard for you and I if we don't really study it. We're like, what does this mean? He talks about a covenant had regulations for worship with an earthly place of holiness. The tent was prepared. There was a first section with a lampstand, a table, the bread of the presence called the holy place. There was a second curtain with a second section that had a golden altar, incense, the Ark of the Covenant. Right? We read these things and we say, look at all of these items of worship. We don't use those things. Why do we need to know this? Why do you and I need to know this? Right? We, for, the, for the audience of Hebrews, man, they would have got this. They would have said, hey, we're familiar with this. 
I mean, it'd be like you and I saying, talking about the communion table or something. It's like, hey, they, they get it. But let me tell you what's going on here. Each of those items had a specific purpose for worshiping God. Each of those items was, was sanctified. That means to, to be designated as holy, to be set apart for a holy use. The priest would not only go worship God and, and, and offer sacrifices to purify on behalf of the people so that they would be purified, but before they worship, they would actually, uh, they would actually have to purify the objects used for worship. Now follow me on this. When we read about the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence and, and all of these physical things going on there, they, were, they each had a purpose. They were purified for the purpose to bring God glory, to point people to God. That same language of purification is used to describe people, right? You read the Old Testament, you read even these first couple verses of chapter 9 about all of the lampstand, the table, and the bread of the presence, all of these items used to point people to God. Same language describes what Jesus does to me and you in his presence. He, he sanctifies us. He sets us apart for a holy purpose. He says, you are purified, you are holy, you are an object of value. You, you are an object to be treasured. I mean, Things were covered with gold. They were valuable. They were treasured. They were, they were precious, right? Jesus does that for me and you. We are valued, treasured, precious instruments in the Redeemer's hands. But those objects had a purpose. They were used for something. They were set apart for a holy use. In the same way, Christ sets you apart for his purposes, there's a reason why the eternal redemption he has secured for you is a gift. There's a reason why it's permanent and perfect. is because he, he wants to use you for something, to be an object of worship of him, to, to be an object that, that, that points, a precious, valued object that points others to him. And we see this throughout Scripture. I mean, Titus 2 verses 11 through 14 says the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all the people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions to live self-controlled upright and godly lives in this present age waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the God of our great God and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Same language used to describe the temple objects Paul uses to describe God's people in Titus. The writer of Hebrews says this is what is going on with us. When Christ, in verse 14, the blood of Christ through the eternal spirit, offers himself without blemish to purify our conscience from dead works. Why? To serve the living God. And this is the beauty of the gospel. This is what Jesus does when he tells lame people to walk, no longer defined by their lameness, blind people to see, no longer defined by their blindness, Dead people to raise to life, no, no longer defined by their deadness. Why in John 8, a woman's caught in adultery. He says, you are forgiven. Now go and sin no more. 
You're no longer defined by your sin. Go and sin no more because I've forgiven you. You were different. This is why he calls his disciples and says, hey, you're going to be fishers of men now. And this is true for me and you as well. The permanent and perfect purity of Christ is for the purpose of mission, to bring glory to God as objects of worship, to be worshipers pointing people to Jesus in our word and deed. And this plays out in marriage. How are you doing that in your marriage, men? How are you understanding that you have been set apart for a holy purpose to point your wife to the God that loves her? How are you doing, fellas? Parents, how are you doing that with your kids? How are you saying, look, our God has given us uh, these children. We have to be objects that have been set apart for God's holy purpose. And that holy purpose is to point these children to a God that loves them. How are we doing that in work and school? When you go to work tomorrow, your job is there not only for you to make money to provide for your family. That's awesome. That's a side of byproduct of why God puts you in that workplace. But you're there to, through word and deed, point people to a God that loves them so they can experience grace because they're not going to get it elsewhere. That's for sure. When you go to school tomorrow, students, how are you doing that with your classmates? When you go home today, what's that look like in your neighborhood? What's that look like in this city for us as a church? So as I close, I'll ask you to think about the perfect and permanent purity we have in Christ that gives us a new way of life here and now to point others to Jesus. Um, If you're like me, there's plenty of things we can repent of. We have guilt, fear, pride that hangs on us. i got plenty of that to repent of myself. To repent means to turn away from those things and to turn toward Jesus. So if you're not a Christian, I would encourage you to turn from sin, to turn from lies, and to turn to Jesus. That's what we want you to know. If you are a Christian like me, we need to repent as well. Let's repent of the sin and idols of our past, but also the guilt, fear, and even pride that we carry with us and turn to look to Jesus together. Is that a deal? Awesome. Let me pray. Uh, Father God in heaven, I thank you, Jesus, that at the foot of the cross we are all the same, that both the prophet and the prostitute can bow down and, and say, have mercy on me, a sinner. And God, that you are gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Jesus, I thank you that you are a true high priest who gives us a perfect and permanent purity. God, that you free us from being defined by the baggage of our past and even the pride of our present. God, that you shape us to be defined by people who are loved, valued, and treasured by the king of the universe and have been set apart for special purposes to bring you a glory to tell others of your grace. So God, I pray that you would show us how to be your people. God, in your grace and your kindness, that you would have us be humble, gracious people, that we would repent often of sin, repent often of pride, repent often of believing guilt and fear and lies. God, that you would grow us in love, that you would grow us in grace, that you would grow us in patience, with one another. God, that you would grow us in wisdom and humility, that you would give us great zeal for the good news, that we indeed, as people for your own possession, would indeed be zealous for good works. Not so that we can brag about the good works, but rather that the good works may point needy people to you, may point us to you. God, that we would experience amazing things together as a church family. And God, that you would use us uh, in the culture of Augusta uh, and beyond the city, even out to the nations, to go and tell the good news 
of a secured eternal redemption in Jesus. God, we thank you in Christ's holy name. Amen.